Make the world a better place. 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 Hey, hey, welcome to Better Place Project. I am Steve Norris, along with my co-host and daughter, Erin Norris. How are we doing, Erin? I'm good. How are you? I am so ready for our second episode of 2021. Last week could not have been more fun with Irmala Mensa Shram. We didn't know what to make of it with having our first guest that literally really did not speak English at all, but... If you have not checked it out, we had an interpreter, our friend Petra out of Berlin, that helped us with this episode, and it's a about a 75-year-old woman in Berlin called the Graffiti Grandma, who has spent the last 30 years scraping off stickers, Nazi stickers and propaganda, and also spray painting over Nazi symbols and covering them with hearts and expressions of love. Just an amazing guest. So check out last week's episode of Ermela Mensa Shram. Another thing Aaron and I talked about a little bit in our chat last week before Ermela's episode was a Better Place Project Challenge where we just kind of were chatting about it. We thought we should try to do something every single day uh, to try to help make the world a better place in our lives, like call a friend, uh, tell them we love them, or do something special. And and uh, Aaron, what was it you said uh, when we talked later? Well, I just thought that was a, a tricky challenge, especially for this climate. A lot of us are staying home, so it can be difficult to do a small act of kindness every single day. And we thought it would be more realistic to reframe that challenge to be a weekly challenge. Yeah, so I think it could be something as easy as paying for coffee for somebody in line if you're at a coffee shop in front of you or behind you, or if you have a, an elderly friend or grandma or grandpa, pick up uh, some groceries for them and drop them off at their house, especially during COVID, so they don't have to go out. Uh, and these are things that uh, if you do it once a week, it's a little bit easier to, uh, you know, to, to carve that out in your week. Or you can leave out water bottles or snacks for UPS workers. Great idea. Yep. So little things like that. So we are keeping the challenge out there for us all to still try to do. But once a week, try to do something like that. And that doesn't mean, yeah, I mean, you can still send text to people you love daily and smile at people on the street and open the door for strangers. Those are all things we'll continue to do. So anyway, let's jump right into today's episode. Erin, tell us who we have today. Christy Harrison is a registered dietitian, certified dietitian nutritionist, and holds a Master of Public Health degree. She is a certified intuitive eating counselor and author of the book, Anti-Diet, Reclaim Your Time, Money, Well-Being, and Happiness Through Intuitive Eating. Christy is the host of Food Psych, a weekly podcast exploring people's relationships with food and paths to body liberation. She also offers online courses and anti-diet coaching to help people make peace with food. You can learn more about her and what she's doing on her website at christyharrison.com. That's C-H-R-I-S-T-Y-H-A-R-R-I-S-O-N.com. Yeah, Erin introduced me to Christy. I have, was not familiar with her. And Erin, you knew her from online or Instagram or how did you know Christy? I originally found her on Instagram and I've been following her for quite some time now. And I've also read her book, Anti-Diet, which really blew me away because I realized that for so much of my life, I've been so concerned about the food that I eat and just worrying so much about my diet. And I feel like we've constantly been sold different diets to try and different, you know, clean eating ideas and food studies and all of this stuff. And uh, she was just kind of a voice that made me realize that I shouldn't, that none of us should really spend so much mental energy worried about what we're eating. She's just brilliant and compassionate, and she was really fun to talk to. And I feel like it was perfect timing to have this conversation with it being the beginning of the year and everyone setting all these um, people normally set yeah. New Year's resolutions to eat healthy and, and all that goals. Yeah, in fact, and- you had used the word compassion there, and she uses that in our conversation. Two words that, that, uh, that caught me, compassion for yourself 
and permission, permission to enjoy some foods that maybe aren't as healthy for you, but you like them. You know, life is too short not to enjoy the process of eating and living. And so we talk about all of that. And, you know, Aaron and I have always, with this show, we want each guest, do they fit the criteria of, are they doing things that are really making the world a better place? And one might ask that question, a dietitian, someone that's talking about, uh, you know, living healthily and so forth. And we feel absolutely that, that what Christy is doing is such good work because to me, there's nothing more precious than, than having food with your family and people that you love. And we eat food every day and life is meant to be enjoyed. And so it saddens me to think that there are so many people around the United States and around the world that are dealing with food issues and guilt and and all these crazy mind games that we play when we're trying to lose weight on these crazy diets. And, And so I love the fact that she's passionate about helping us all live healthier lives. And when we're living healthier lives, we're enjoying our lives more and we feel better. So she was awesome. Without further ado, here is Christy Harrison. Make the world a better place. Make the world Hello, Christy. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much Make for joining us today. How are you? Hi, I'm good. Thanks. How are you? It's nice to be with you. We are doing fantastic. We've got Aaron here as well. Yeah, we're doing well. All right. Well, let's dive right in. Christy, if you could... Uh, Erin, by the way, uh, really got me excited about it. She turned me on to you and said, uh, you know, we got to get Christy on the show. And... So I did some research on you. Aaron sent me some links, and I've gone down. I've had a blast going down the the rabbit hole of your podcast, which, by the way, for our listeners out there, it is Food Psych Podcast. Highly recommend it. Uh, so we'll be talking a little bit more about that as well as your book and all that good stuff. But if we could kind of go back to really the very beginning and tell us about kind of your background and how I understand you were a journalist, so uh, and doing a little research on you, so how you went from kind of there in your childhood and end up doing uh, what you're passionate about now in the diet and nutrition world. Yeah, it was really sort of a winding path and and borne out by my own experiences, I think, in a lot of ways. Um, you know, so back to childhood, I, I wanted to be a writer since I couldn't remember, since before I could even hold a pen. You know, I was dictating, mm-hmm. quote unquote, books to my, my parents. Um, and so, you know, journalism was a really natural fit. I started working in, you know, created a literary magazine in high school, worked on a literary magazine in college, was the editor in chief by my senior year. Like, you know, it was always something that I I really wanted to do and um, went into my first career in journalism, you know, around age 22 when I first graduated from college. And at the time, I was also struggling in my own disordered relationship with food. And that was kind of a new thing at the time for me because I had had the privilege of having enough food growing up. I never had like food insecurity. I never had my relationship with food sort of challenged in that way. And I also was have always been in a smaller body and never had anyone tell me I needed to lose weight, never was teased for my size or things like that. And so I, ha- I really didn't have anyone interfering in my relationship with food and was a very intuitive eater. The way we're all born eating, I was able to maintain that until about age 20, my junior year of college when I went to study abroad in France. And I gained a little bit of weight while I was there. And suddenly, like everything I had always heard about food and weight and body size just came roaring up. And mm. I went on my first diet and very quickly really sort of tumbled into disordered eating. Um, And so Mm -hmm. that was sort of the the place from which I was coming when I was starting my career as a journalist. And as a journalist, you have to pick a beat to kind of specialize in. And I wasn't eating enough and I wasn't, you know, I was obsessed with food and exercise. And so the things that I was obsessed with sort of became my professional focus. I decided to start um, specializing in food and nutrition and health for my journalistic beats Mm -hmm. and got really obsessed with like sustainability and organic food and stuff like that. But from a, a perspective of, you know, trying to be the healthiest I could be and, you know, wrote a few pieces about cutting out gluten before that was even really a thing. It was, you know, like the early Mm. 2000s, 2005, 2006, when it was just starting out and kind of fanned the flames of that emerging trend. 
I wanted and, to talk about that in a bit too. Um, yeah. If I could jump in there real quickly, Christy, uh, one of the things that you just talked about, I heard you talk about on one of your podcasts or videos or what have you, and that was when you did go do your study abroad and you were uh, and, and you gained weight at that point. And I remember what was interesting about that is your weight gain there you had described in a previous podcast seemed to be related to like a doctor prescribing you a birth control or what have you that completely messed with the hormonal hormonal you know balance in your system and whatnot mm-hmm. which I thought I, it kind of made me wonder how many Americans does it kind of start there not even directly related to diet but more medicines that we're taking Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think I think sometimes the unintentional weight gain that comes with medications like that, um, because we live in diet culture, can lead people to want to do all kinds of things to, quote unquote, mm-hmm. fix it or change it. And the reality was, you know, for me, it was that birth control pill that just seemed to have that side effect and lots of other side effects on me, too. I think it wasn't the right pill for me for a lot of reasons, not not because of the weight gain per se. But mm-hmm. when I went off that pill, you know, a year or so later, I immediately kind of got back to my starting point. You know, my, my body sort of went to what it was before. And, um, but then, you know, at that point I was already so invested in disordered eating that that wasn't enough. And I had to like keep doing more. And I, Mm -hmm. you know, was really, really disordered in my thinking about food and exercise and pushed my body to this place of, um, really poor health. You know, I, I ironically started having severe hormonal problems at that point and have, you know, missing periods and um, all kinds of things that, you know, doctors couldn't really figure out. And it's so ironic that, you know, as a young woman, like that's sort of a demographic, especially a young, white, thin woman, that's the demographic that's sort of the stereotypical sufferer from eating disorders. You know, it's like, in fact, everybody gets eating disorders, people of all genders, shapes, sizes, backgrounds, whatever. But the stereotype is sort of like someone who looked like me at the time. And yet I still couldn't get the help I needed. I still was told like, oh, you probably don't have, you know, you couldn't have an eating disorder. You're not skinny enough. You know, you're not, you're not too thin. Just don't lose any more weight. Right. And so, Mm. you know, that weight stigma that says that people have to be emaciated in order to qualify for help with an eating disorder um, was what really stood in the way of me getting getting the support that I needed at first. Wow. Wow. Well, thank you for sharing about your disordered eating. I feel so much for people who have gone through eating disorders. And unlike other struggles that people experience, like whether it's unhealthy habits with drugs or alcohol, generally the solution is just to cut out the drugs or alcohol. But I feel for people with eating disorders because you have to keep food in your life to live, of course. Can you talk about the process of what it's like getting back on your feet after, or can you just talk about the process of recovering from an eating disorder and what that's like? Sure, yeah. I mean, I think my recovery was very winding, like so many people's who don't really get the proper help and treatment and diagnosis at first. So I kind of had to like figure it out on my own in a lot of ways. Um, But what I think was so helpful and important for me was first psychotherapy. That was such a saving grace. You know, I was in therapy for other reasons. I didn't really come in the door for eating issues. And it sort of emerged after a couple of years of working with this therapist that I had disordered eating. Um, But also, you know, so therapy was one thing I think that was hugely helpful. The other thing was um, finding the book Intuitive Eating, discovering Mm -hmm. the concept of intuitive eating and sort of bringing that into my therapy. And the book Intuitive Eating and, you know, now the authors, the two co-authors are friends and mentors of mine. And I've, you know, had them both oh, on my wow. podcast cool a bunch of times. That? And yeah, like it's it's pretty amazing that, you know, their work was what helped me so much. And we've connected so much because I since went on to, you know, study and train with them on intuitive eating. Um, and I'm a certified intuitive eating counselor now. But, you know, back then I was just like a journalist sort of researching. I actually was researching a book at the time that I never ended up writing. But a lot of the research for that sort of 10 years later formed some of the basis of my book, Anti-Diet. Um, but, you know, in in that original book research, I discovered intuitive eating. I discovered some of the scientific research showing that, you know, 
binge, uh, that restrictive eating and dieting leads to binge eating and so-called emotional eating, that people aren't really, you know, quote unquote, addicted to food the way that they feel and the way that I certainly felt back then, um, that really the driver of that addiction-like feeling is actually restriction and deprivation. And so, you know, what I've learned through that personal experience and also through so much research and learning I've done since then as a dietitian and professional in this field is that you really, for treating eating disorders, you have to treat the restriction. That's like the baseline to me is is treating the restrictive behaviors, the restrictive thoughts, the restrictive um, you know tendencies and ideas that people have that can be really subtle, that can be really um, underground. You know, because I think people often mistakenly think like anorexia and binge eating disorder are like opposites. You know, that it's like yeah. you're you know anorexia is eating too little and binge eating is eating too much. That's the sort of mistaken thought. And and I believed that too back in the day. But what I've actually learned is that they both come from the same place. They both come from this restrictive mindset and these restrictive behaviors that in the majority of people, restriction leads to binging. So trying to diet, trying to lose weight um, will lead to binging for most people because we're programmed to you know eat a lot and seek out food and and to binge in situations of um, deprivation and famine, which is really how our bodies experience a diet or any sort of restrictive eating. You know, they experience it as too little energy is coming in and we have these evolutionary uh, biological processes that kick off when that happens, when our bodies sense too little energy coming in, because that's how that's how we exist here today, right? Our ancestors would not have survived if it weren't for that, you know, those biological mechanisms that allowed them to survive starvation. So we're, you know, we're here today, thankfully, because of that mechanism. Um, but I think people want to fight it in diet culture. People want to, you know, fight their bodies at, at every turn. And so for a lot of folks who, who have binge eating disorder, it really does start with a diet or starts with some form of restriction, maybe even unintentional restriction, um, you know, through food insecurity or through just having a job or something where you're not able to eat enough throughout the day and then suddenly you're binging at night. Um, you know, with anorexia, it's sort of a, a more rare condition where the, the binge instinct doesn't necessarily kick in. For some people, it does. There's a, a type of anorexia called the binge purge subtype or, um, you know, where people might be sort of engaging in some purging or binge, uh, binging and purging behaviors um, in addition to the restriction. But for some folks with anorexia, the, the restricting subtype it's just the restriction and they're not really experiencing the binging. And that is, you know, we don't really know why that is, but it's thought to be maybe a genetic um, mutation or something where, you know, people don't have that that binge urge that kicks in to like help them survive. And so they end up just on the restrictive side. But in either case, you know, and, and every eating disorder in between, because there's lots of different types of eating disorders and manifestations of eating disorders, you know, it the restriction is really at the core of it for so many people. And eating disorders are considered a biopsychosocial disease, meaning there's a biological component, there's a psychological component, and there's a social component. And the social component is this drive for thinness, the thin sure. ideal that is so prevalent in our culture it's and on diet. TV culture. and the magazines, it's the advertisements. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, it's it's so pervasive. And so we're raised in that, right? We're raised to believe that's what we should look like. Um, and then you have, you know, the biological piece is that when you do restrict your eating like that, it kicks off these, um, you know, changes in the brain to where either you're ending, you know, you're binging in response, or maybe you have the restrictive subtype where you're, you know, restricting begets more restricting. Um, and then at the psychological level, you know, there's, there's, sort of purposes that an eating dis eating disorder can serve. It can serve as like a psychological coping mechanism in many different ways for many different people. Um, but one of the ways that it serves as that coping mechanism is especially when you're in a larger body or you've been told you're too fat, that, you know, restricting your eating is a way to cope with that stigma, is a way to try to, um, you know, outrun the oppression that you're facing based on the size of your body. So... Where do people start then? In in your book, and you mentioned anti-diet, and the subtitle is Reclaim Your Time, Money, Well-Being, and Happiness Through Intuitive Eating. Um, in fact, can we start right there, Christy? Uh, can you, for our listeners who aren't familiar with that, what exactly is intuitive eating? 
Yeah, so intuitive eating is, uh, you know, like I said, it was sort of the philosophy that helped me heal my relationship with food, right? But it's also just the way we're born knowing how to eat. It's the default mode. It's, um, you know, being in touch with your hunger cues and aware of when you're hungry and and saying something about it, right? Like babies will cry when they're hungry and, Mm -hmm. you know, get their needs met that way. Um, And it's also, you know, recognizing your fullness and sort of allowing that to to guide you, not in a way that's like a rule, like I must stop as soon as I'm full, but more just like, okay, I'm kind of like, I'm, I've lost interest in food. I'm done. I feel like going and doing something else. And again, we see this in kids and babies, you know, babies and small kids where um, they're done eating and they turn away and like you can't possibly like force any more into their mouth yeah. and cry or they, you know, sure. squish up their mouth and, you know, or they, they want to, you know, if they're old enough and toddlers and stuff, they'll get down from the table and start running around. They're just not interested in food anymore. And then um, as they get older, they have parents tell them, uh, you're not going outside to play until you finish everything on your plate right. or you can't, you know, so we're already teaching our kids to whether you want it or not, put it away. It's on your plate. You have to eat it. And mm-hmm. I just think that's a, a horrible thing as well. Yeah. Forcing yourself to eat after you're full. Yeah. Yeah, it's getting in in the way of someone's intuitive relationship with food. And, you know, I know where that comes from. I think that comes from a good place, right? When we um, want our kids to eat more or, you know, tell them to clean their plates. It's like, you know, wanting to make sure that they're getting enough, wanting to make sure that they're growing. Or um, some parents have had, you know, even generations ago had like hunger or food insecurity in the family that kind of gets, you know, that that worry, that concern, like, you know, there's people starving or, you know, whatever, um, Kind of makes some parents push food on kids, but yeah, it's you know, unfortunately, it does take kids away from their innate uh, abilities or innate intuitive eating skills. In, in fact, a episode that I particularly enjoyed it's from was from back in September that you talked about diet culture starts at infancy. Mm-hmm. Um, things our parents said to us leads to harmful behavior. Essentially, a lot of discussion like that that I found really really interesting. Also, and so. Back to then uh, where I was going with this. In your book, you mentioned that 90% of people who intentionally lose weight gain it back within five years. Mm -hmm. So to me, that statement's really, really powerful. That pretty much then begs the question, why are we ever dieting? So how then, what are first steps somebody, somebody can take that they do feel like they are overweight and they want to improve their health or what have you, rather than going on a quote-unquote diet, um, where should they start? What steps should they first take yeah, towards it's, it's a, a tricky, healthier life? Yeah, that's a tricky question, I think, in, in this culture because um, so much of our culture is fixated on weight loss as a, a means to health. And really what the research shows is that you know, you can ha- you can be healthy at a larger size. You can be healthy even when you're in the so-called overweight or the so-called obese categories. And, you know, I say so-called or use air quotes around them all the time because those are stigmatizing terms in and of themselves. Sure. Like overweight, it's like over what weight? Is there some magical weight that people are supposed to be? Actually, no. You yeah. know, that, that, you know, people's bodies can determine what weight works for them. And if you're eating and moving your body in an intuitive way, in a way that is in line with, you know, this sort of default mode that we're all born with, your body will figure out the weight that it wants to be. And sometimes that's higher than you would like it to be, right? And I think that Mm -hmm. can bring up a lot of grief and a lot of, um, you know, difficulty accepting. And so I think it's it's a really nuanced, tricky thing. And it's so hard to like, um, sort of give people like, concrete steps that are that are easy to take you know it's it's simple it's not easy i should say because there's so many simple things that i can say to do but it's it brings up a lot of um you know often internalized weight stigma for people and things that they've gone through in the past that have been painful so you know the first principle of intuitive eating of the um the structured program of intuitive eating which is designed to help you get back to that default mode with food the first principle mm-hmm. of intuitive eating is reject the diet mentality and so that really means you know rejecting weight loss plans, rejecting um, rules that you've learned from diets that you've been on in the past, rejecting, you know, formal diets and informal diets that you've done, all the ways that you're kind of, you know, just quote unquote watching it or holding on to these um, 
restrictive beliefs about food, even if it's not from a formal diet. And that mm. in and of itself, that rejecting the diet mentality is such a tall order in this culture, right? It, oh, it's, I bet. Yeah. it's so challenging to do that. Um, but the reason it's the foundation of intuitive eating is because then it allows you to start to tune back into your own body rather than listening to some outside authority or rules that you've internalized from outside authorities. It's allowing you to get back in touch with what is my hunger actually telling me? What are what are my hunger signals? How do I tune into those? What are my cues that I ha- I'm really satisfied and I enjoy something? And you know what food brings me pleasure? How do mm-hmm. I know when I'm full and have had enough? And you know how like if I if I keep eating to a level that feels like uncomfortable fullness, what role is restriction playing in that? You know how can I find the hidden restriction in my day? Because usually that's there. If you end up eating to a point of uncomfortable fullness, there's often a um, you know almost always in my experience there's restriction that preceded that, whether it's mm-hmm. kind of long term restriction or like restriction earlier in the day. Um, and so all of those things, you know, to be able to tune back into your body like that requires like shutting out the diet noise and making kind of a pact with yourself to say, you know what, for the time that I'm working on intuitive eating, I'm going to give myself, you know, six months or whatever it is, right? Sometimes people have it easy, an easier time sort of making it like time dependent like that. So for the next six months or for the next three months or whatever it might be, I'm going to give up all the diet rules. I'm going to do my best to like lay all those down, not go on another diet, not follow the rules of Whole30 or whatever it is that I was just doing and mm-hmm. actually focus on like what my body wants and what my brain wants, what I what I find satisfying and pleasurable and, you know, tune back into those things and start to really make peace with food, you know, mm-hmm. so not having foods that are um, considered good or bad on limits or off limits, but actually a lot, giving yourself full unconditional permission to eat anything that you want. And so from that place, making choices of, okay, what tastes good? What feels good? Oh, you know, I tried this and I actually didn't like it that much. That's good information to have. Maybe I'll, you know, make a different choice in the future. Or, you know, I find myself eating to the point of discomfort all the time when I'm eating this particular food. I wonder why that is. I wonder if I have this, you know, internalized belief, unconscious belief that I'm not going to be allowed to have this food again when I'm you know, done trying this intuitive eating experiment. So how do I make myself um, really trust that I have access to this food so that I'm not constantly overeating on it, you know? Mm-hmm. And and so I think um, in those ways, you know, we can start to really develop a much more peaceful, intuitive relationship with food that reconnects us with those cues we're all born with. But, you know, as you can see, just from that brief overview, like there are principles, but it's not sort of an easy step-by-step process because each principle brings up so much that we have to grapple with. Yeah. One thing I am hearing when you go through that is that it seems like you encourage broadening your awareness of everything that you're eating. How am I feeling about this? How does my body feel? Just being in tune with it. And also, I, I wanted to get your thoughts on, maybe because I'm, I, I talk all the time, I've my whole life been a slow eater. I'm always the last, and I was a family of eight kids, and you know, I was always the last person <laughs> eating business dinners. I'm always the last guy at the table where the plates have been cleared, and I'm halfway through my entree, and it's usually because I have such a big mouth that I'm talking the whole time. <laughs> but, but, I, uh, but what I kind of realized in even my 20s and in my 30s was that I ate less than a lot of my my colleagues because they were woofing down their food and sometimes going back for seconds or thirds and not like really enjoying the 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 food that they are eating and and I've and and I'm is this good advice that I've heard because it seems to make sense to me that the last thing you want to do is eat in front of the television for example because you're so focused on something else and you're just you're not enjoying the pleasure of your meal and and studies show that you eat faster if you're in front of a television or if you're being entertained or what have you um is that advice that you subscribe to that you think makes sense i think that it can sometimes be helpful or make sense for people to reduce distractions when eating um, in order to cultivate more pleasure. But I actually don't think that it's necessary all the time as a hard and fast rule, like don't ever eat in front of the TV or don't ever eat while distracted. I sure. eat in front of the TV all the time. Like I do too. You, <laughs> you know, know, Monday night football, sure. Right. I'll grab some chicken wings. Yeah. Of course. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and, you know, and that's fine. And that's a, a part of a peaceful relationship with food. I think we're, we're social animals and we're um, – 
you know, we evolved to to have other things going on while we're eating, right? Like, you know, connecting with people, talking, having some form of entertainment over meals. You know, before TV, it was like dinner theater, right? Or, um, sure. you know, all kinds of cultures around the world have something like that. And so, you know, I don't think it's um, a problem in and of itself to be eating while distracted. I think it it can be helpful when you're relearning intuitive eating to to practice that in sort of uh, concerted ways, not to feel like I always have to do it, but like, let me try to have a mindful meal where I'm not looking at a screen and see what comes up and see what, you know, pleasure I'm able to derive from this meal that maybe I wouldn't have otherwise, um, see if I can reconnect with my body better. But I've found that, you know, once people are sort of locked into intuitive eating or, you know, don't want to say locked, but like have kind of clicked with it again in the sure. way that, you know, we all are born knowing how to eat so we can all get back there. And it, it does eventually feel, um, even if it's awkward at first to get back to it, it does start to eventually feel really natural again. Um, and in my experience with that, you know, once you're sort of clicked back in, it's you're not going to necessarily eat more just because you're eating in front of the TV. Like you, when you know, you know, you know, when you're full, you kind of know gotcha. it. And, mm -hmm. and so that, you know, certainly um, I think it can be trickier when you're, dieting or when you're first trying to get back into intuitive eating and a lot of the folks I see who do um, eat and you know quick more quickly when distracted or kind of are like the speed eaters who wolf down their meals are often deprived in some other way right they're often people who are dieters or who are um, just relearning intuitive eating and sort of still don't fully trust that food is going to be available whenever they need it and so you know I always think of um, dieting as in, and, you know, deprivation of food in general as a form of trauma on the body, really. It's, you know, the body is um, reacting to that deprivation in a way that, you know, is, is pushing you to eat more and eat lots when you have access to food because it doesn't fully believe that you're going to have access to food consistently. Mm -hmm. And so I think sort of having compassion for that and having awareness of that, like, oh, that's my body doing its thing because it doesn't fully trust yet that I'm going to have access to food whenever I need it, can help you then reassure your body again and again, like, it's okay, food is here, it's coming, you're not going to be deprived again. And eventually, once that reassurance kind of sinks in, then it starts to be easier to slow down and, you know, not feel like you need to eat everything all at once all the time. Gotcha. One thing that Aaron and I discussed right before we hopped on this call that we've both kind of encountered throughout our lives and her being the younger generation and, uh, and that is disseminating through so much information about what is good for you, what is bad for you, you know, whole foods, or organic mm -hmm. foods versus stay away from pesticides versus, you know, most of my adult life, I was taught that fat is the enemy. You know, for most of my adult life, I, I was having non-fat lattes for, for many years and, uh, and, and, you know, not to eat uh, eggs or if you do, you know, the egg, uh, egg whites. And, mm -hmm. you know, then I read the, the Brain Grain, which I wanted to get your thoughts on that. Aaron told mm -hmm. me, I had mentioned this book to, to Aaron that I would like to bring it up. And she said that you talk about in one of your episodes, but she didn't tell me what you said. So, so, yeah. Yeah. Oh, in your book. Okay. Um, so, but, but yeah, so much uh, different information that we're told one thing, and this has happened to me so many times, and I've never been a dieter. Um, I, I love food and I enjoy it. And, and one of the reasons why we wanted to have you on the show is that it saddens me that, that, uh, people that, that, uh, have thoughts that prevent them from truly enjoying an experience of sitting down and having a meal with their family and their loved ones and, because as I get older, that's all, that's, that's living to me. It's, it's my mm -hmm. greatest pleasure really in life is sitting down and having a meal with people that I love, my children and my friends and family and, and whatnot. But, um, but getting back to the, uh, the information that we get out there, you know, we're told drink more coffee and, you know, and, and cause it's good for you and then don't drink it because it's bad for you. And, mm -hmm. and there's so many studies out there that are funded by these groups that make certain, whether there be pro milk or pro coffee or pro or anti this or that, mm -hmm. uh, you know, uh, go vegan because meat is bad for you. Oh, you need meat because of your, you know, the iron or what have you. So what advice do you have to our listeners to filter through, you know, when they hear something about it, how do they get to 
the truth and get to some, uh, you know, uh, studies that are unbiased, for example, Uh, because there Mm -hmm. just seems to be so many studies out there that when you look at where the funding comes from, what, you know, it just seems like there's probably inherent bias there. So how do we get to the truth on what's good for us or not? Yeah, I think it's so tricky because, you know, you, you kind of need a master's degree to suss it out. Like literally, I, yeah. you know, was a nutrition and food journalist before going back to school to get my master's in public health nutrition and my dietitian's license. And, you know, even specializing in those areas, I didn't really know how to read a study. I kind of learned on the job and I mostly like looked at the abstracts of the studies. I didn't get the full text, you know, or I was even sometimes writing based on a press release about the study. And that's true for a lot of journalists, unfortunately, who specialize in food and nutrition, that they're often really strapped for time. And so kind of just basing things off press releases or like an interview with a researcher or something like that um, mm-hmm. or the abstract of the study. And they're not actually diving into and looking at the nuances of the study. You know, for me, it was only after getting the master's degree that I learned I had to take a research methods class and then, you know, applied it in other classes. And that's when I was like, oh, wow, like there's so much about science that doesn't get reported mm-hmm. by the media exactly. because it's not getting, you know, because people don't know the questions to ask. Journalists don't know the questions to ask. And um, oftentimes, you know, I think there's this sort of publish or perish climate with scientific research where the researchers themselves want to amplify the more media buzzy kind of findings of that they have and maybe um, downplay some of the nuances or some of the parts that don't fit the picture because, um, you know, it helps them get funding. It helps them get exposure and publicity. And, you know, so it's it's not anyone's fault in those fields. It's kind of the way those fields are set up to sort of um, push more like diety research to get through that's like, oh, this food will save you, you know, add 10 years to your life or this food will kill you or whatever. And, you know, these sort of sweeping conclusions that I think scientists and journalists sort of um, are in this like, you know, Ouroboros kind of situation where they're they're both amplifying those um, problematic messages. And then the public gets so confused about what to eat or not to eat, right? And it's like, oh, this food was said to be so good for us 10 years ago. And now there's research saying that it'll actually, you know, take years off your life. Or um, I'm supposed to be eating more of this food, but then, you know, this other study that is funded, you know, right? Like the, the example of like the beef industry versus like, you know, some vegan group or something funding a study, they might come to exact opposite conclusions. But those two opposite studies might get reported at different times in the media and people are sort of left like, okay, what's real? What's true? You know, is, is the, is the more recent study true just because it's more recent? I think that's how it often gets framed, right? New research shows that actually this is going to be, this is harmful to you, but the new research isn't necessarily good, right? The new research could be funded by industry and, you know, as you pointed out, Um, studies that are funded by industry tend to have conclusions that are favorable to industry in, in a, you know, very large numbers. Um, Mm -hmm. And so I think that that's one thing that we have to look at. And, you know, again, who has time for this or who has the like education to do this? Right. I think um, I try to, to, you know, sort of help people read studies in my role as a dietitian and journalist who kind of knows how to do this. And there are others out there who who do the same. But um, I also think that maybe we sort of have to take a step back and look at this from like the 30,000 foot view of like, okay, we shouldn't have to ask individual consumers to like suss through research and like get subscriptions to to these scientific journals so that they can read (laughs) the nuances of the paper. And because sometimes what's in the abstract will literally contradict something that's in the actual meat of the paper, like in the results section. But you don't even see that if you haven't subscribed or, you know, have some kind of institutional access to the paper. Mm -hmm. Um, So like we can't ask people to have to do that work. I think that you know, really, it's the responsibility of journalists and scientists to be um, more careful and to start questioning, like, what is the goal here with nutritional research? You know, there's there's some evidence that nutritional research is pretty bogus, that it doesn't actually, like, nutritional epidemiology doesn't really lead to useful conclusions about what people, quote unquote, should eat. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, 
you know, maybe there's different directions that we need to go in terms of helping people make informed decisions about nutrition and health. And then for the individual, for the consumer who's just trying to make sense of all this, I often say, like, take 99.9% of the stuff you read about food, nutrition, and health with a huge grain of salt. Maybe don't change your behavior based on what you read in the media or even, like, if you happen to get an abstract of a study and it says something, like, don't don't take that as gospel, you know, try to, you know, intuitive eating really is about getting in touch with what works for you, getting in touch with your body, with your, you know, body's wisdom so that you don't have to be taking all of your cues and your nutritional recommendations from outside sources. You can actually start to look at, and this is kind of an advanced move within intuitive eating because it can easily get twisted by diet culture if you're still within the diet mentality. But eventually when you get sort of far enough into intuitive eating where you've given up those diet culture rules and beliefs to a large extent, you can get to a place where you're like, oh, I trust my body that when I eat, you know, when I drink coffee, for example, this is a personal one. Like when I drink coffee, I get terrible acid reflux. And so I love coffee and I love the taste of it, but maybe I can get that flavor in other ways and not actually drink the beverage. Or maybe caffeine just doesn't really work for me. And I test that out over time and I really like come to trust that. And it's kind of amazing what, you know, the difference between that and saying like, I'm not allowed to have coffee is because mm-hmm. I've been in both places. Like I've you know, yeah, consciously tried to give up coffee. Yeah. Huge difference. Because, yeah, when I was like, I'm not drinking coffee for this X period of time, all I wanted was coffee. It was all mm-hmm. I could think about. I was super resentful. And as soon as the period was over of, you know, trying to give it up, I went right back to it. But when mm-hmm. I was, you know, allowing myself to like really examine how I felt with it and to say I can have coffee whenever I want. I can have as much coffee as I want. There's no restriction on coffee. But let's think about how it actually feels in my gut when I drink it. You know, I came to this sort of point where I was like, well, it just doesn't feel good enough that I want it anymore. You know, I just don't really want to drink it because I know for sure with all this experimentation I've done that it, it doesn't sit well with me. And so, so that is the point you're thinking. Yeah. Yeah. That's the point that people can get to when they when they do that sort of experimentation and when they give up the diet culture. You know, I gave the example of coffee because it's a pretty neutral thing. I think there's not, you know, so, there is certainly some uh, scientific research that would suggest it's good or bad, but it's not like a super moralized um, beverage, mm-hmm. at least in mainstream society, um, yeah. versus, you know, if it's something like gluten, right, or dairy, those things are so moralized by diet culture that I think it's really hard to peel away the layers of like, what am I actually believing about this thing that's causing me to have physical reactions? What what are my beliefs about dairy that cause me to have heartburn when I drink it versus like, what's my body's actual cues? What are What is my body telling me? Um, mm-hmm. And so it's you know, like I said, an advanced move, but I think it is very possible with intuitive eating to get there. And then then you're your own authority. You don't have to listen to all of these studies that contradict each other all the time. Yeah. Interesting. So, uh, so since we do, though, have someone with us now that has that aforementioned master's degree, so we can pick your brain <laughs> a little bit on a few things that I'm dying to pick your brain on if we could. <laughs> Um, you had just mentioned gluten, for example. Now, taking into consideration everything that you just said, that we're all our own individuals, that we need to listen to our own bodies, what, what uh, something that does something to one person may not have the same reaction, obviously, in another. So mm-hmm. taking all those things into consideration, you know, we've heard so many horrible things about gluten in the last, you know, how many years? And I told you I'd read that, you know, the book by uh, Dr. David Perlmutter mm-hmm. that, um that a few years ago about gluten and cholesterol being, you know, not the enemy. And uh, and after I read that book, I kind of backed off on gluten and I started not being afraid of fat. And actually, I think that had a really positive role in my life. Mm-hmm. I would put, you know, drink more whole milk and, and not be afraid to have natural foods, more avocados, more, you know, because so much of our brain is natural fats. But since then, you know, I've heard so many conflicting things. So I'm curious to get your thoughts first on gluten in general, how it affects the body. 
Yeah. So from the research that I've done, and I will I'll first say that like I was someone who for years thought I had a gluten sensitivity, even though I, I got tested multiple times, I did not have celiac disease. Celiac disease okay. is a genetic condition in which you truly cannot process gluten and it affects less than one percent of the population in North America. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's a very rare, you know, not exceedingly rare, but pretty rare um, condition to have. So most people, you know, 99% of people don't have celiac disease. And I was okay. one who does not have celiac disease, and you can get tested for it by reputable um, allergists and doctors and stuff. Um, but, you know, a lot of people think, and I used to think, that I had some sort of sensitivity to gluten that was not celiac. It's, you know, known in the scientific literature as non-celiac gluten sensitivity. And there's been research on this because I think it's become sort of a trend, especially in the, you know, the early 2000s to the 2010s, um, for people to think that they have some sort of sensitivity to gluten. And so as the research has gone on and, and you know, the body of research has been developed, um, researchers started asking the question, okay, what if people don't know if they're getting gluten or not? What does that do? Because in most nutritional research, they actually don't do randomized, controlled, double-blind clinical trials. They're usually doing more of like a an observational trial where it's like this group of people who happens to eat more gluten has this outcome and this group of people who eats more, you know, less gluten has this outcome. Or, um, you know, sometimes they'll do uh, clinical trials, but they're not actually blinded, meaning that people know they're getting gluten. They're eating a, a bread, you know, sandwich bread that they see has gluten in it because they're like doing it at home or something mm-hmm. um, versus, you know, the, the control group or the intervention group that might be getting gluten-free bread, like sees it on the package that they're eating gluten-free bread. And so their beliefs about gluten can influence their outcomes. Mm. And so more recent research has looked at, okay, how do we control for people's beliefs? How do we actually give them like a placebo-controlled, double-blind, randomized trial with gluten and figured out, you know, how to do that with like a pill, I think it was, you know, you're eating or maybe you're, you're getting certain baked, I think it was like they got baked products that they didn't know there was no label on the baked goods. And so it either had or didn't have gluten. Mm -hmm. And found that when people were in this situation of double-blind, randomized, placebo-controlled trials, um, they didn't actually have any difference. The people who thought they were sensitive to gluten had no difference in symptoms or reactions than the people who didn't think they were sensitive to gluten. Power of the brain. Right? It's totally wild. And so, yeah, yeah, the mind-body connection is real. And that's not to say that, you know, if you think you have an issue with gluten, that it's all in your head, but more that if you think you have an issue with gluten, it might actually be creating an issue with gluten in your body. The anxiety of that belief might be causing some physiological symptoms that you're having that, of course, then you're like, oh, see, when I eat gluten, I have this symptom. But actually, it's more about that mind-body connection than it is about the gluten itself. And and on that topic, in one of your podcasts, I you, you were talking about this subject, and you mentioned not only the placebo effect, but you used a term that I had not heard before, the nocebo effect. Mm-hmm. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, sure. So the nocebo effect is basically the inverse of the placebo effect. So the placebo effect says... Um, you know, you you believe something is good or is helping you, and so it does, right? You take a sugar pill and you think it's actually curing your mm-hmm. disease or whatever, and it's and it's just the power of the belief in that thing that is helping you. The nocebo effect is you believe something is bad or is harmful to you, and so when you take that thing, for example, gluten, you feel bad, you have symptoms, you have negative wow. outcomes that are you know, attributable to not the thing itself, but actually just your belief that the thing is bad, right? You're equally you're, fascinating to me. That's just wow. Yeah. It's so wild. And the nocebo effect is a huge problem in nutritional research and any sort of research on like digestive health, especially. I think um, you know, people it's hard to control, it's hard to really do a placebo or have a you know, have people not have negative beliefs about a particular thing. Yeah, um, exactly. and so so, you know, the research is often confounded by this nocebo effect. Yeah, if we believe something is going to happen, then it uh, inevitably, uh, you know, will. And gosh, to, to think that so many studies in our lifetime that that has been, that's kind of built into these studies that, you know, therein lies, I think, a 
big problem with misinformation. Throw out the potential bias because, you know, the, the company doing the research is being paid by, you know, the, you know, JoJo's muffins to say that JoJo's muffins are really healthy for you with such mm-hmm. and such product. But throwing in, you know, the, the human, uh, you know, the mind aspect of it and the placebo and the nocebos is, uh, wow, makes it even more complex trying to get to the truth. You know, what mm-hmm. is good for us, what is not type deal. Yeah, so. it's hard. It's science is not uh, infallible. You know, I think I think science is one of the best methods we have for finding the truth still. And sure. science is subject to so many forms of bias. And, you know, I think in, in a lot of cases, scientists are aware of that and are trying, you know, like the, the group that I was telling you about that did that randomized controlled double blind trial. Mm-hmm. had actually previously done a different trial where they found that non-celiac gluten sensitivity seemed to be a thing because and then they realized oh but we didn't like blind people to what they were getting so is that going to change things uh, did the you know the next trial and found actually maybe no non-celiac sensitivity gluten sensitivity isn't really a thing i interviewed the lead researcher for that um, for you know both of those studies in my book and I asked her point blank, like, do you think, you know, given your research, non-celiac gluten sensitivity is really a thing? And she said, I don't think it's a thing. You know, you know, maybe it has wow. there. Maybe there's something that has an effect for a very small number of people. But, you know, overall, I think it, it isn't actually the gluten. Fascinating. And another one that I'm, I'm dying to ask you about, and although this is more this is not just food and nutrition, but also, and you talked a, a little bit about it as well, allergies, uh, peanut allergies. Mm-hmm. Is it a real thing or how real is it? Peanut allergies are definitely real. I mean, any sort of like anaphylactic reaction like that is very real. And, and you can you know see that like people usually know that they have it because they've had a terrible reaction, right? So they've um, had their throat close up and had to go to the hospital or they've um, broken out in hives and had difficulty breathing, you know, so things like peanut allergy, shellfish allergy, shellfish, same thing, yeah, yeah. Um, you know, yeah, stuff like that. That's that's really the sort of anaphylactic, like you need an EpiPen kind of thing mm-hmm. that those are those are real allergies and you can get tested for those. And, you know, people who have them, generally speaking, aren't. Um, subject to the placebo or nocebo effect as much, I think, because mm-hmm. it's pretty. It's a pretty obvious reaction. I think it's you know when people think they have some sort of lower grade sensitivity to foods, even if it's like peanuts or shellfish, where it's like, oh, I get a little bit of a stomach ache after I have this or something like that. That mm-hmm. could be a little trickier, you know. It's um, again, I, I recommend people getting tested by a reputable medical doctor, yeah. allergist you know, for the, for these issues, um, to really determine whether or not you have them because, you know, having to avoid a food unnecessarily, I think is really harmful to people's relationships with food. I think when it's necessary, when you have something like a, an anaphylactic peanut allergy or you have, um, celiac disease where gluten legitimately is harmful to you because your body lacks, you know, the ability to process it, um, in those cases, I think it it's, you know, people are not like fighting with themselves so much over the food. You know, they're mm-hmm. if they feel really bad when they eat something, you know, again, like I said, it, it sort of often makes it so much easier to just be like, yeah, I just don't eat that because I don't like it or because it doesn't feel good in my body or because I have this reaction to it. And I know I, I know that. And so it's a matter of self-care, you know, to avoid the food. Mm-hmm. Um yes. But, you know, theoretically, like with intuitive eating, you do have unconditional permission to eat all foods. It's not like it's off limits. It's even even if you have a peanut allergy that will cause your throat to close up and you have to use an EpiPen to, like, keep from having a really severe, horrible reaction, you technically could eat a peanut, not because, like, I'm not telling you to do that. Don't, you know, that's not what I want for people. But (laughs) technically you could because we're humans and we have free will, right? You have, like, the ability to do that. And so thinking of that as like, okay, I could do this if I want to, but why do I not want to? What are the reasons that that might not feel good to me? I think puts gives you so much more agency than if you're thinking like, oh, I'm just not allowed to eat that because my doctor said I couldn't or something, you know? Understood. Yeah. Again, just a mental shift, mm-hmm. different way mm-hmm. of thinking. I love that. And your book really woke me up to the crazy ideas that I've had in my head that I believed for so long that I just realized that I spent so much of my life 
ever since middle school, but high school and adulthood just wasted headspace on counting calories and worried about what foods are good for me, what foods are bad for me. And I'm sure a lot of girls out there especially can relate to that. In your book, Mm -hmm. you talked about a study that is really sad, but also didn't surprise me. I guess there was a study in 2017 that showed that a higher Instagram use was associated with a greater likelihood of having orthorexia. Can you talk about the impact that social media has had on diet culture and eating disorders as well? Yeah, no, it's it's really horrible. And I think, you know, social media um, is able to connect people with good resources sometimes, too. But I think in a lot of cases, the impact that it has had has been so harmful. And, you know, potentially maybe the overall impact on people's relationship with food has been negative because so much of what gets shared on social media, so much of what is out there and sort of uh, influencer land, you know, is this rarefied, perfectionistic um, idea of wellness, idea of health that shows people only eating, you know, green things or multicolored vegetables and smoothie bowls and drinking their shakes and whatever. And, you know, doesn't show, A, the the diversity that probably exists for in, in their menu. And so yeah. is giving this sort of false model to people of what, quote unquote, healthy eating should look like. Mm-hmm. And B, like, th- it's not evidence-based. It's not really supported by um, science, by good nutritional science to show that you should only eat, you know, whole plant-based unprocessed foods. Like there's no reason to just stick to the sort of palette of um, Instagram influencers when, you know, you can have a diversity of foods. You can have really all foods, you know, the the motto of um, the nutrition and dietetics um, organization that I belong to is like all foods fit. You know, it's mm-hmm. we can we can really have anything we want in in our menu. Um, and with diversity and variety, we actually have better health outcomes. There's research that shows, you know, variety is a positive nutritional indicator. And when we're sort of rigid and locked into eating only certain things and restricting ourselves and not getting enough variety and diversity too, even in, in terms of the macronutrients, you know, because if you're eating like a lot of Instagram influencers, you're probably really lacking in carbohydrates, in fats and protein. Um, and so, you know, it's not a balanced menu. It's not something that's going to actually help you, um, you know, support your well-being. And, you know, but I think it, it's so trendy and it's so um, it's just unquestioned in certain circles. And for people who are young, you know, like you said, spending so much of your your younger years, you know, count, counting calories and thinking you had to be eating a certain way. Like, I really worry the, the effect that it's having on young people because they're so impressionable and more likely to think in sort of black and white terms. You know, this is good. This is bad. This is healthy. This is unhealthy. Um, and sort of act accordingly in a way that that creates so much disorder and chaos in people's relationship with food. Yeah. So what you're saying is it's okay to have the piece of pie or the chocolate chip cookie. Enjoy it. Take it in. See how your body feels. Mm-hmm. You know, and and you know, think about what you're going to eat the next day. Do you want to eat uh, the the same thing, or what else can I eat to balance out my diet? As opposed to, I'm going to deprive myself of that simply because it's going to, you know, be an X amount of calories, like Aaron said, mm-hmm. or it's going to be too much sugar or or what have you. Um, yeah. So kind of my motto in life, just not just with food, and I'm really into fitness. I like to exercise and work out and run and be physical and hike and all those things. Uh, but I believe in uh, moderation, um, everything in moderation, including moderation. <laughs> and I think when we allow ourselves to indulge a little bit, then to your point, Christy, we're not craving it as much because we never allow ourselves to enjoy it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think once you get through that sort of honeymoon phase, and I, you know, I do think that oftentimes when we've been deprived, we end up kind of swinging over to the other side temporarily of like, you know, if you've been told you can't eat sugar and then you kind of start allowing yourself to eat sugar, sometimes it's all you want for a while, right? Yeah. But then if you let yourself 
go through that and get get to the place, get to that other side where it's like, okay, I, I truly trust that I can have sugar whenever I want. I'm also kind of sick of it right now. And like, what else can <laughs> yeah. I eat? Knowing that sugar is going to be, you know, sweet foods are going to be there for me whenever I want them again. Then you really get to a place of agency. Then you really get to a place where, you know, balance and variety kind of come into your life and come in, into your menu without a lot of effort. Like you don't have to think about it or force it. it just It's just, you know, your body and your brain are kind of leading you there naturally. Exactly. Mm-hmm. And I feel like when we open up to a more wide variety of different foods, then I feel like that's better on our mental health as well. Because when we do enjoy mm-hmm. something that's, I guess, deemed as maybe sugary or whatever it is, we won't feel that guilt and that mm-hmm. like shame exactly. and feeling bad about ourselves for indulging in something sweet or whatever it is. Yeah. yeah. And shame is not good for us health wise, mm-hmm. you know, feeling bad about ourselves for our food choices or feeling bad about ourselves for other reasons, any sort of, you know, berating ourselves that we might do is really not a good motivator for well-being. Self-compassion is so much better of a motivator and and associated with so much better health outcomes, you know? Mm-hmm. So, yeah, taking off that mm-hmm. shame and giving ourselves the compassion, the permission to eat what we want and to know that it's going to be available again whenever we want it and that, that it's okay that we have it, mm-hmm. I think is so much better for our, our you know, full our, our holistic well-being. Mm-hmm. I think there's so much, you know, diet culture these days talks a big game about holistic health and really it's not holistic at all. You know, it's like it's just about physical health. It's just about like cut out this food and you'll feel like this or, you know. That's so true. Eat these foods for mental health or whatever it is, right? And it's not actually looking at what are other aspects of mental health that we need to consider and and how mental and emotional health play into overall health. Mm -hmm. And when you're restricting your eating, you're you're damaging your mental health, you know, and and when you're able to allow yourself the permission and flexibility with food to have whatever you want, you can kind of move on with your life and, you know, your mental health improves and you're able to kind of make space for so many other things, you know, to your point about um, having time in your life, right? And mental energy to not not be fixated on food again, you know, as much. Compassion and permission. Mm-hmm. I love those two words associated with, with eating. Give yourself a little compassion. Don't beat yourself up and permission to f- enjoy a meal with your family or enjoy something that makes yeah. you feel good. And then, like you said, Go have some fun and do something and live your life. Um, I think that's great advice. Can you, for Christy, for those that want additional help and uh, I've heard really good things about your online courses, can you tell a little bit about the the types of courses that you offer for uh, people that maybe want to, to dive in and get a little bit more help and coaching yeah, and that sort of so thing? Yeah, thanks so much. Um, so I offer my kind of flagship course is called Intuitive Eating Fundamentals and it's 13 modules, you know, was originally sort of 13 weeks, but really people take however long they want with it because it's lifetime access and you can go through the modules, you know, teaching you all the principles of intuitive eating. I walk through the 10 principles and also some really important kind of um, ancillary practices and things that that are important to know for intuitive eating. And it has, um, as well as the, the modules, it also has an online community forum where you can connect with other people who are going through this process and a monthly Q&A podcast that I do as well for course participants. So people can ask, you know, whatever individual questions they have coming up that are um, you know, things that they're sticking points for them with intuitive eating that, that I can then help them work through. So it's a lot of like individual attention in that way, in addition to this community support. Nice. So, so that's a live podcast. It's, yeah, then. it's every month, but you also get access to all the um, the back episodes too. So you can listen to the like hundreds one, yeah. of questions that nice. I've answered at this point. <laughs> um, I've been doing it for mm-hmm. almost five years. I started in, in April of 2016. Awesome. So wow. um, nice. yeah, so that's kind of the flagship course. And I have sort of a an intro, like a, you know, uh, level zero kind of like starter course um, that you could 
take before that if you want just to get a taste of intuitive eating. It's actually called a taste of intuitive eating. Um, it's a mini course. And that's just like five days of practices about, you know, sort of around intuitive eating concepts, preparing you for the principles, um, helping you think through what your relationship with food is like now and getting through some of the kind of early barriers to intuitive eating. So um, both of those are on my website and um, I can give you the the URL to put in the... That is christyharrison.com. That's with yep. a C-H, correct? C-H-R-I-S-T-Y Harrison, H-A-R-R-I-S-O-N.com. And we have put that in the episode notes as well. That's right. Yep. And if you go to the courses tab, you'll find all my courses there. Um, and I also have my podcast and my book and the other stuff that I do as well. Yes. And hi- again, highly recommend the podcast to our listeners out there. That is Food Psych Podcast, P-S-Y-C-H. And gosh, you were an early adapter there. I think 2013, uh-huh. yep. Christy? 2013. So this is yeah. eight years of doing it. Um, that's awesome. It's been, it's been a wild ride for sure. Well, you are doing some incredible work. There's nothing more noble than helping people have a more pleasurable, a more fulfilling life by enjoying food and not letting food dominate their life. So thank you for the good work that you are doing. Erin, uh, did you have any other questions at this time? No. I mean, I could talk to Christy all day. <laughs> thank you for sharing all this information, Christy. This has been so fun to talk to you. Oh, you're welcome. Thank you so much for having me. This is really delightful. Well, we'll definitely keep in touch. Uh, maybe we'll have you on again uh, six months or a year just to uh, keep in touch. Let us know what yeah. you're up to. Uh, but thank you so much for everything, Christy. It's been a blast having you on. Yeah, thank you so much to you both. Thank you. Take care. Special thanks to our guest, Christy Harrison. Thanks to our producer, Noah Existe, and editor, Joe Tampoca. Our music was written and performed by Nadia Importante. Thank you so much for listening. If this podcast brightened your day in any way, please subscribe and leave us a comment. If you have a suggestion for a guest or simply have suggestions on how we can improve our show, please send us an email to betterplaceprojectpodcast at gmail.com. Look for small ways to be kind to others this week, and that will help make the world a better place. Make the world a better place. Make the world.